Hey everybody, Mark DeSalvo here, and welcome to the DeSalvo Performance Hour. Uh, my guest today is a really interesting one. Uh, he's a guy that I was introduced to over the summer by uh, Jance Footit and Dr. Alfredo Herrera by way of Dr. Herrera because of a seminar he was putting on. And uh, my guest, Ben, was the translator for the seminar as Dr. Herrera's uh, native tongue is Spanish. So if you know anything about uh, physiology, exercise physiology, as it relates from uh, English to Spanish or Spanish to English translation, it's actually very difficult. Uh, some words don't exactly mean what you would think they would mean in English as they come over in translation. So it's a very difficult translation job to do, and uh, Ben did it exceptionally. And uh, after getting to know him, uh, I found out he lives uptown. He's a guy that lives in Manhattan, uh, obviously. Uh, I'm recording this in New York City, and uh, we got to talking and uh, learned a lot about his story, uh, his history as a baseball player, but then as a sports performance coach, and now he is an expert in the realm of traumatic brain injury and helping people heal from uh, difficult sports injuries that they might sustain. Uh, he's a really, really good guy, a phenomenal guest, has great perspective and stories because he's been around for a while. He knows, he's, he's known a lot of great people. You'll hear him mention some really cool stories on this podcast. So if you're into, um, if you're into kind of old stories and interesting training uh, anecdotes and crossing paths with some really interesting people, uh, for the strength coaches out there, you'll appreciate his references to Mel Siff and a few others. Um, so please, everybody, open your ears and minds and enjoy and listen to the sounds of Ben Velasquez. So I can just we can we can start talking about the Matt winning. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so my question was, mm -hmm. what does that look like? What does their programming look like for someone like you? Who's uh, mm. are you a competitive powerlifter or do you want to be? Uh, I want to test those waters. So like maybe not. Uh, that's kind of the goal. I mean, I won't be shy. Yes, I would love to. I'd love to take a few years and and compete and see see what I can do. Okay. Um, I don't think. Uh, See, I always hate when people say this, but I don't think I have great genetic potential for it. But mm -hmm. I think that um, with intelligent programming from them and my mm -hmm. um, and just being a, a smart trainee and just mm -hmm. working hard and dedicating time to it, I think I could do some cool stuff. I mean, I, I have fun with it, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It was kind of the competitive part is kind of down the road because I get most competitive in here with kind of helping the athletes that I do train kind of like I put a lot of that fever or fervor into them you know okay. that's why okay. I kind of stopped competing in jiu-jitsu because I felt like when I was competing in jiu-jitsu uh, for now at least mm -hmm. I, I was and then coaching here it felt like it was too hot like, I, mm -hmm. like it was just like the yeah, there's, I, was, um, I was constantly on fifth you know I've told my athletes that you know in order for you to be a very good coach mm -hmm. um uh, strength coach or otherwise you have to be somewhat selfless right um, it ha it's all about the athlete but in order for you to be a very good athlete you have to be somewhat selfish yes um, it's true you know you need it, it'll come across as selfish but honestly when you look at it in detail it's about the guy that's mo the most prepared right and it looks from the outside like you're being selfish but the reality is, is that you're the most prepared. Right, right. No, that's a. I think that's that's perfect because I I couldn't agree more. I would. I'm in this weird position now where, 
I've been doing this long enough where younger people out of college will ask me questions sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I basically said the first part to them a lot. You kind of have to be ready to interrupt your own training a lot to, to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. But mm-hmm. the, the powerlifting thing, I've always loved powerlifting. Um, I've always tried to learn a lot about it. I've always loved the lifts. I've always loved, you know, kind of on my free time, you see, I read a lot of West Side books and just sure. powerlifting history, not just them, but mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, I, It's also kind of an easy thing for me to do here now that I have the gym where it's, it's not mm-hmm. so easy for me to drop everything and go to jiu-jitsu because that involves like, you know, getting the equipment going like making time usually when clients want to come in so mm-hmm. it's like I can power lift kind of anytime I want or I have free time because I have keys to my gym and mm-hmm. I'm here most of the day right the so, convenience factor so it's an easy way for me to keep training and stay yeah. sharp that way without um, being tied to like class happens at 6 p.m. every day you have to be there it's like well, it's not gonna happen usually right so that right, was another right. thing that drove that at this point in my life like I always kind of wanted to pursue it but I always I guess I had more of a love for martial arts in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. like in, in coming, like growing up of, well, first hockey and then martial arts. But, uh, and, but I always, I loved powerlifting. It always kind of drew, yeah. drew me in, you know, right, um, right. cause I was a kid that kind of grew up in the nineties. So bodybuilding was huge. So I got yeah. introduced to everything through bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. But then once I saw powerlifters, I was like, those guys are cool. Like yeah. that's the, yeah, they're pretty hard. It's interesting. I was the yeah. same way. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I got introduced to the area in general, you know, just through through corporate fitness. I mean, I was yeah. an athlete. I played baseball, so we used to train, but back then it was archaic, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know uh, and so I was introduced on the corporate side. Oh, interesting. Through it. And mm-hmm. uh, from the corporate side, uh, through two bodybuilding, and then when I saw the other athletes. Yeah that branched mm-hmm. off of there I was like oh no wait a minute this yeah. is this is this is real performance so this is real strength and conditioning yeah oh, interesting um, but cool. but the bodybuilding roots of are always have always stuck because yes. some of those things have come full circle now and you say hey we were right you know yeah however many years ago right it's true like there's always kind of the the earliest bodybuilder, I guess I don't know how early you want to go, but like George Hackenschmitz and whatever, but even yeah. maybe post that, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are, uh, their intuition was kind of right, you know? There might have been something weird, but mm-hmm. but like their intuition was right. Like bulking and cutting cycles seem to be like, decent, you know? Like the mm-hmm. science seems to be kind of getting going that way. I don't but know how you... I had this conversation mm-hmm. with an athlete the other day because you know that... We met at uh, at the seminar that uh, Jance put on with Dr. Alfredo Herrera, right? And I right. was translating for him, mm-hmm. and you know the bulk of what his message was was that all of the research they did with the Soviet Union led them to the conclusion, both anecdotally and uh, and and through research that the majority of their time was to be spent in that intensity between 65 and 80 percent yeah mm-hmm. right right exactly so back to the bodybuilding thing the majority of the time spent training in right. bodybuilding is in that intensity right zone, exactly where i felt like you know and especially with diligent bodybuilders you felt like the really good bodybuilders if you put the drugs aside they were both strong yes lean 
mm-hmm. and carried a lot of muscle. Right. The really good ones were very strong. Yes, definitely. Um, but they spent the majority of their time within that framework of intensity mm-hmm. that we now know is probably the best thing for most athletes. Right. You know, when you right. speak about an undulating curve, most of the time you spend within that intensity zone with a little bit below and a little bit peaking above, right? Right, right. exactly, yeah. No, it's, it's very true. I always, that was actually something that I got really interested in reading about. I don't, I don't know if it was through Charles, uh, mm-hmm. and for people listening, one of our common connections is Charles Poliquin, but not directly. It came from, um, like you just said, the seminar that Chance Footit put on with Dr. Alfredo Herrera. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were a longtime um, student and, and friend of Charles's. Uh, yeah, I met Charles, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I met Charles in, I want to say it was 1997. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember yeah, you I mentioned. I met, okay. I met him a long time ago, and we became friends. He was a mentor. He was a friend. He was a, a colleague. We worked together at the University of Texas with the track and field team there. Oh, cool. And we had four girls there in short distance and the Olympics there. Oh wow! Um, and a few of those girls medaled. I believe it was a bronze and a silver. I can't remember, but right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Charles was always a source of inspiration, information. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's how you and I met. It was yeah. we met through him indirectly. That's how I met Dr. Herrera as well because you, yeah, how you came he was a lifelong learner. And it was, we would always be like, oh, who do you have in mind? Who are you going to work with? He goes, man, I want to work with this Cuban coach because mm-hmm. he was part of the Soviet system in Cuba. And he had access to research that they did there right. and can also translate some of the research that the Russians and the East Germans did right. um, that, because he speaks Russian. So that's how I met Dr. Herrera. Oh, and gotcha. You guys got the translated version in English of the Soviet system. Right, yeah. That was uh, that was amazing. I mean, we'll jump there because since that seminar, it's I like something he said there. I think it was to the effect of like if you get, get like 40% of what I'm saying or the concepts, you'll be able to apply it to whoever you coach. Mm-hmm. And I've been kind of seeing that everywhere since August. You know, it's December now. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just like countless athletes and clients, and that it's just it's all made so much sense for. I guess I would say like, I don't even know where to begin. Basically, I figured out um, like the three month sort of cycles that he was sort of advocating um, mm-hmm. that for this one athlete I was working with, Mateus Lutes, who was just in Korea for that tournament. He lost in the semis, but okay, he. Like, he's a guy that was a, a middleweight, like a true middleweight, like a heavy middleweight, and he had to cut down to lightweight, and we did it in a really healthy way, and his strength was just like on par, if not exceeding everyone there, which you would expect anyway, being a guy who's kind of stronger than natural lightweights, but sure. but with such a brutal weight cut, it, it, it stuck, and I really owe a lot of that to the way like we periodized it and the way we did it, how it was mm-hmm. really general, kind of healing the injuries, hypertrophy, basics. Um, moving into more um, intensifying kind of in that 80 you know 75 to 80% range mm-hmm. and then the last month was just strength like special strength like like different 
uh, speeding it up, like Speed where strength, need, yeah, explosive so, strength, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you know, kind of one thing I've done a lot of, and I would love to get your perspective on this because I know you have a much better working knowledge of Olympic and Dr. Herrera's system. Is that it seemed to me that he loved to use Olympic lifts and barbell, um, I mean, and among other things, mm -hmm. um, to to peak his uh, athlete's power and strength and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Whereas like when you read like Verkoshansky and like super training, even though I know they were contemporaries, he's more into plyometrics, not necessarily the bars it seems like. Yeah. So I, I, I really enjoyed seeing, and I don't think that's a perspective a lot of people get, mm -hmm. that they get to see that in any era, in any way, because people say, oh, the Soviet, the Soviet, mm -hmm. this and that. Mm -hmm. That's so many coaches. They're mm -hmm. going to have different preferences. Mm -hmm. They're going to like different things. Mm -hmm. So to me, it seemed like you know, it was really cool to see his perspective as a guy who was an Olympic uh, or weightlifting coach mm -hmm. apply that framework to athletic development. Whereas, like, when I always, whenever I was reading Verkoshansky and, and super training and all these things, mm -hmm. I always was like, oh, that's great. But, like, I don't, plyos never inherently made as much sense to me as, as barbell lifts so and stuff my, like that. Yeah, I can if, answer from three perspectives. Sense. Yeah, please. I know I said The only lot. one I've <laughs> never met, obviously, was Verhoshansky. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I totally bastardized his name, Verhoshansky. Uh, but I did, I, I did work with yeah. Mel Sif. Mm -hmm. um, obviously oh, cool. worked with Charles. Right. And obviously have spoken in depth to Dr. Herrera about... Mm -hmm the Soviet slash Cuban system because they were both one and the same right. because the Cuban system was funded by the Soviet Union right. and their coaches and all of their methodologies were shared. Right. Um, the only time the Soviet Union put the brakes on was when they felt like the Cuban athletes were excelling beyond what the Soviet athletes were. Oh, interesting. Simply, pr usually because of genetics. Right. Um, so, in the, you know, then they would put the brakes on, but for the most part, they pretty much gave the Cubans everything. I know that Dr. Herrera said that they looked at plyos extensively, and right. they felt that peak power development was superior when using plyometrics, mm. but that the risk versus reward was greater. Right. That's so true. that they weren't, they were more concerned about peaking athletes and not hurting them. Right, right. And then Charles, when he, he said he went full circle and he initially was with the Verhershansky school and he, and he agreed as well with Dr. Herrera in terms of peak power, but I do remember him saying that the plyos specifically were a little bit too risky, right. um, especially for his seasonal athletes. Right. You know, I don't know what his opinion was if he was preparing an athlete over an Olympic cycle. Right. But I know for let's say his off-season hockey, off-season NFL, he felt like it was a bit risky for them. You right. know, early in his career, he used them a lot. This is Charles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Mel Sif, he used jumps a lot. But in all fairness to Mel, I don't recall him in his career working with mm -hmm. the same type of athletes right. that, you know, I don't recall him working with football, hockey, um, yeah. you know, baseball, which is more applicable to, you know, our population. Yeah. You know, we're talking with very few coaches that are working with Olympic level athletes, yeah. preparing them over a full cycle. Right. So you're working with guys like yourself that have a jujitsu guy who had you have a tournament coming up and it's an off season basically that you have to work with him. Yeah. Generally, you know, whatever, 12 to 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. So m me personally, I'll use jumps. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I won't use landings. Interesting, yeah. Uh, I like using jumps within a circuit. Right. Specifically when the athlete has already been pre-fatigued. Right. Um, oh, so I might yeah. use it at the end of what we call a map circuit. Mm. My colleague Paul Gagné and I use similar type of energy system uh, circuits. Oh, cool. Um, I remember Charles would do complexes using jumps um, but no landings with... Uh, like for example, he would do complex training, or mm -hmm. he would use some type of contrast method, right. and he would use jumps where he would uh, go from uh, heavy, slow to a little bit faster at a you know right. uh, at a lighter, and then really fast. Um, so he would use like a contrast, and the jump would be at the end, but he wouldn't use landings. Um, later in his career, I do remember that. Interesting. What yeah. would that look like when you say you're not using landings? Uh, so you put a plyo box. So mm -hmm. you're, you need to, uh, uh, you need to uh, execute ground force right. to the plyo box, but you're going to land on a soft box rather mm -hmm. than landing from the height that you jumped. Oh, got it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're mm -hmm. jumping up, but got not it. down. Okay, I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So mm -hmm. we're using them to basically excite the nervous system, right? But kind of eliminate the risk factor of landing. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, yeah that I and it was just really interesting to dive into the the different methodology that I mm -hmm. that I hadn't been exposed to before uh, because I think and I think a lot of it has to do with Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell and Mel Siff because they really pushed that like their methodology of course and not yeah. not even in a bad way just it was really cool to see the diversity of perspective kind of within eastern style periodization so yeah it's interesting because mm -hmm. um i've never met louis simmons mm -hmm. um uh dr serrano in ohio has threatened to introduce me a bunch of times <laughs> but uh if you know eric you, you know you have to take that with a grain of salt uh <laughs> i've never met him but shout I out to thanks. eric um <laughs> yeah but i've never met him but it's interesting i've read his stuff and mm -hmm. i've seen several documentaries on him and I've seen the numbers that his athletes have put up consistently right to me he's like the he's like the Ilio Gracie of jiu-jitsu yeah when it comes to powerlifting mm -hmm. he kind of flipped the sport on its end yeah uh, on its head because you know before moral I, I looked at old training programs and there was variety but not that much variety right exactly you know people generally Right. periodize their powerlifting preparation the same mm -hmm. um, and then he came along and just flipped it on its ass yeah. and um, exactly. you know the numbers are show for themselves I mean I'm not a powerlifting right. you know uh, uh, I, I don't know that sport but mm -hmm. from my outside perspective I think it's never been the same yeah no it's uh, gosh there's a lot there I mean the the thing with with Louis and and Westside that I always liked was when I first started training athletes or even wanting to, and I was thinking, okay, like where would I even start? Like what? Who who kind of has an idea of these things? Um, you know, I would go through old books and things I had read, and mm -hmm. I can't even remember how Westside came into my purview. But as I read the powerlifting methodology, I thought to myself, this makes sense for athletes. So like I didn't mm. necessarily have the the powerlifting, um, uh, you know, experience, but it was mm -hmm. just like, yeah, this, you know, this makes sense. If somebody's not 
strong or not big repetition method. Like you need to do basic hypertrophy work a certain amount of week. If this, if they're if they're strong, mm-hmm. um, but not powerful, dynamic method em- emphasis. If they're, it, it's like Charlie had the best interpretation of Louis Simmons mm-hmm. and his methodology that oh, I yeah. ever heard. One time we were talking about it, and he goes. The West Side Method and Louis Simmons Method works for anyone and everyone that stays within the system. Yes, interesting. So you have to stay and do exactly mm-hmm. what he says. So whether you're a powerlifting athlete or you're a baseball player, mm-hmm. you're going to get really strong. Right. Really strong. Right. Provided that you stay within the framework of his system. Right. Not You can't use it like a tool like, and you can use other things. Right. It's true. You know, you can't pluck things out of his system mm-hmm. that you can't. Yeah. So that was, I thought that was pretty, a pretty interesting uh, interpretation. I was like, yeah, you're right. That's right. Yeah, no, I think that it's funny. Everyone has said some version of that, uh-huh. which is hilarious because Dave Tate, who was one of his, Louis, like, confidants and best athletes ever and then uh-huh. started Elite FTS, and um, he said the same thing, that he had already gotten to, like, an elite level total, and but he, he tore his pec and he had all these problems because he was using, like, you know, just linear block, or no, excuse me, linear periodization, just Western style, and then he... Um, he had known Louis and he was like he thought the he tells the story a lot and he's like he had always thought that it just sounded like bullshit like he was just like he was like doing parlor tricks doesn't make sense yeah it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense and then he realized he did not want to quit powerlifting and he went to Westside and he's like I'm gonna do whatever you say just do it and then that was when he went even farther like just into the deep end right and he said, I never got weaker with Louie. It was always stronger. And it was, and he said that he had like the craziest recall. Like this was in the documentary that recently, yeah. that like Louie would remember everything about each athlete. Like Dave would say like, I need to do glute ham raises. What did I do last time? And he'd be like, you had a 50 pound med ball for eight. <laughs> like he just could do it like that. Like, like a savant. Wow, like, that's you know, a gift, man. Yeah, it is. That, a lot of those guys have that gift. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I met him once and I didn't even really know what to say to him. I just thanked him. I said, thank you for all the information. It, it's it's really helped. I, he I don't know what else to say. He probably appreciated that. Yeah, that's all yeah. I can really say. And he was really I'm going to meet him for sure. I, yeah. I, I should. I mean, he's one of those guys that if you're in the field, yeah. like in your lifetime, mm-hmm. like I, I had so much fun with Mel Sith because- oh, sure. You can, he was not just, he wasn't just a brilliant guy, because he was, he was like a nutty professor. Interesting, yeah. Just I got seriously, that impression, yeah. Seriously, when you met him, it was like the character right out of um, uh, Back to the Future. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting, um, yeah. Love to lift. Yeah. Uh, love to innovate. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, you saw the passion that he had for, right, for, uh, pushing forward the amount of information that he knew like strength coaches weren't getting a lot of information right and you saw the passion that he had for mm-hmm. real science and real information right and giving it to everybody mm-hmm. it was awesome man he was a good guy that's so really cool. he's one of those guys that I'm glad I met that's yeah that's awesome that's beautiful so on that point though of like you were saying with conjugate and, and Charles's analogy of how you you have to listen to like exactly what he says and it'll be perfect I always, when I started learning conjugate, I thought to myself, this is kind of like a thinking man's uh, style of of periodization or or organizing of your training, but 
if you think too much, it's going to kill you. Like you almost have to work with somebody who knows what they're doing. And then this actually is a great segue back to Matt Winning, how we kind of started at when we, we were talking about this podcast is, mm-hmm. um, at this combat sports um, weekend that Charles put together in 2017. Actually, it was two years ago this month. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, probably this week. Because it was like on my birthday. My birthday was two days ago. and he, Happy birthday, oh, belated, you. dude. I appreciate it. Thank All you. Right. And uh, yeah, 2017, that sounds about right that he did it. And uh, met all these great coaches were there. It was like a like a who's who. I didn't even, I didn't know what to expect. It was like a like 15 people and all, all great coaches. But, and Matt was there. And Matt was a famous West Side lifter. And he had a bunch of world records at one point there. He was part of that wave with like Greg Panora and all these other guys who were great benchers, great squatters, great lifters there. And Matt, I love his approach because he's really into longevity. And I got that sense right away that like he really cared about having people lift and lift for a long time or be able to enjoy it and do meaningful work for a long time. And he was also, as I later found out, like Louis would have these like sort of lieutenants to kind of like administer like translate the programs and he was one of them so interesting and he's got a master's and in, in uh, I don't remember exactly what um, but when you say longevity yeah. how, what, what gave you that impression because that's unusual for an athlete in that yeah, sport right so he was I, I th- at the point when I met him he was retired and just coaching okay um, I'm pretty sure I don't want to speak for him but yeah mm-hmm. and uh just the things he talked about like in the seminar like yeah you don't want to do this grip forever because then you're going to start to probably find some over have some overuse injuries and um, that was right about the time that in jiu-jitsu and training and prepping for jiu-jitsu I was experiencing a lot of overuse injuries myself mm-hmm. and I was always someone who was really careful about how I trained and monitored intensity and modern moderated my volume pretty well because I liked to train in the gym and I liked to train in jujitsu mm-hmm. and I was also coaching so I got the impression like oh this guy he gets it he's like one of the people he, he cared about health in a general sense too mm-hmm. and that's another thing that always like you know if I know that someone cares about someone's health long term I want to listen to them but it doesn't mean I don't appreciate someone who's like a drag racer and like doesn't care like yeah because yeah. there's something to be said for both but that's why I ask is most of those guys in that sport are sort of more yeah you know, drag like you said drag racing it's more about yeah let's go film and Louise style you know exactly yeah um, and I think there's like I think people who are I, I don't know. Maybe it's just people who have a, they kind of have that coaching gene or really care about mm. it in a different way or just a mm. really smart, like, yeah. I, I don't know. But I've met t- tons of really smart people who just gun it too. So yeah. Yeah. it's hard to say. Um, but we, I, I don't think we really kept in touch too, too well. But then at the Arnold uh, a year ago, I went to one of his seminars and he recognized me right away, like walked right up to me and said, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. And we had a nice conversation and, Talked a little about Charles, talked a little bit about, um, you know, just lifting, business, whatever. Sure. And then he was doing another seminar, which I took my girlfriend to. Like, it was a bench seminar. And I just, like, I I was like, oh, this guy. And so it was like three hours on the bench. Oh, and this first seminar we went to was all on longevity and, and training. And if you care about training for a long time, these are the things you should probably do. Actually, this T-shirt I'm wearing is from that seminar. And he invited Mike O'Hearn to, to come, but Mike O'Hearn just had the baby at the time so he couldn't make it to the seminar oh no kidding yeah so on the back is Matt's logo of the shirt so um, uh, where was I going so anyway he his whole conjugate uh, 
you know, he he's like a, a child of the conjugate system, basically, since sure. he was like a teenager. Sure. And, you know, was able to adapt it to sort of work for him. And everything he would say were all things that, like, I noticed with the athletes I worked with. He was like, I was stuck forever at, like, a 1,050 squat, I think he said. Like, he really wanted a 1,200-pound squat. Because, like, at Westside, apparently, if you don't have a 1,200-pound squat, you ain't shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the thing. Which yeah. is amazing. It's like, what? I, it yeah. just sounds ridiculous even saying it. It does, yeah. Yeah. But he was talking about it, and he said, you know, I was training and training and training. And he said, and then I started essentially training less. Like, in other words, I started bringing my intensity down a little bit, and I brought the frequency and, like, volume down a little bit. But the, you know, kind of greased that groove, so to speak. And then it started going up and it started going up and then he finally hit like 12 plus in competition. And it was all things that I had just, I had noticed with jujitsu athletes, there was one guy who was kind of on the cusp of being world class and he trained so much because that was just what he observed everybody doing. Like mm-hmm. he just saw everybody all the time, like training twice a day, every day. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't in his constitution. That's just, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's really in any of theirs, but mm-hmm. that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was breaking him down and I convinced him to monitor his training a little bit more and to, you know, you know, adopt days where you have partners just doing drills, adopt days where you're doing live drills, uh, positional training, but not just going to war every day, you know? Well, yeah. So you, you, you restructured his actual technical training. Yeah. Just like I didn't necessarily give him cues of like, Oh, you're this sweep sucks or this throw, you know, this, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this guard sucks. It was more Mm -hmm. like this, uh, this is what I would recommend because this mm-hmm. is what we're doing in here in the gym. Sure. And this is kind of how you look at these things. And I had seen, and at that point, he like flourished and, and, and to put me, him over. To me, that's the secret sauce in MMA. Yeah. And all, and all, mm-hmm. and all martial arts that are competitive. Yeah. Is from an outsider looking in because mm-hmm. I've never competed in that. I've only been a student yeah. at a very low level. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, at the highest level, mm-hmm. From a performance standpoint, yeah, like they just need to look at the entire programs better. Mm-hmm. It just looks like these programs are not structured properly. Right. It looks like the majority of these guys are overtraining, whether yes. it be too much volume mm-hmm. or too much intensity, yes, or not enough recovery, because those are three different ways of overtraining. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. They mm-hmm. are, and they're the guys that are really successful are the guys that are best at structuring that mm-hmm. and organizing that. Right. Meaning, you know, the coaches and the athletes. Right, exactly. You know, no, that's that's a good observation and that was actually you keyed into exactly another reason why I really like Matt was because I think and, and why the positive and negative of conjugate is that in my experience at least, is that you can get really good at um, sort of, uh, I, I can't remember the word. I think Mel Sip called it cybernetic periodization. At <laughs> I point. think so, yeah. That where you get really good at the day-to-day like um, tweaks to make it a really good training session. You get really good at reading the athlete. You get really good at making everything count. Mm. But you have this, you're looking at the world through a straw, like Charles would say. You mm. were only looking at that day and you would lose track of the bigger picture program, which is like, what has to happen this month or what has to happen in three months? And uh, that's not necessarily conjugate's fault. That's the coach's fault. And I was making that mistake. Hmm. And I, then I was making that mistake on myself. 
is mm. that I was really good at that micro, those micro cycles. I was mm -hmm. really good at like figuring out in 10 days, I want you here and seven days I want you here and you'd get there really well. But then in these longer terms, and that's, that's what I think happens in, in MMA and jujitsu a lot mm -hmm. that the longer term vision isn't there. Mm -hmm. And I saw that Matt was really good at that and he cared about long-term programming. He cared about long-term development and I kind of got obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And so I took everything he taught in those two days at those seminars and I converted myself beginning of 2019 into training only conjugate basically. And it's, you know, and, and it's funny cause people always say, Oh, you start training conjugate, you get weaker. It's like, I don't think that's true. My lifts went down for sure. Okay. But like, because of the repetition methods and because of all the, that sort of, um, I know I'll think of the word afterwards, but sort adjusting day to day. Mm. I ended up getting more into bodybuilding than anything like they're what they call like repetition method mm -hmm. and like my back got bigger everything got bigger like mm -hmm. measurements biceps quads um, everything so what got, I was gonna ask you within so, his system right he's writing you programs does he have you test initially like will mm. you have you do one RMs yeah will you have you do three RMs is he looking at other type of measurements? Right. So he was, um, but he wasn't monitoring this most of the year. So I was going through most of the year and figuring and, and just kind of getting used to it and enjoying training and enjoying learning about it. But then I got to about a few weeks ago where I said, okay, I think I've taken this as far as I can take it by myself. I want... I want like the expert to, I to, to steer me now. And I because I, I know with my, because it helped me so much with my athletes because I'm thinking of their long term. Mm -hmm. But with me, I'm just thinking about my day to day. Like we talked about when you came in, I was like, oh, I got an hour, let's train. So I'd have, always have these really good training sessions, but I get to the end of the month and I'd be like, not really getting that much stronger. Like mm -hmm. I'm not doing this or I'm not doing So that was my fault in programming mm -hmm. for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so that was why I wanted someone to take the reins. So, mm -hmm. um, so yes, to answer your question, um, the long way is that they tested my lifts to start with the um, the power is with respect to the power lifts, and then have me on a program from there. So uh, they go in, they like to go in three month cycles. So presumably at the end of the three months we'll retest retest everything yeah, and then see what's going on there right yeah. right right so a shout out to matt and rob because they're the great coaches great people and uh they have a great gym in columbus if you're there like it's a really, i'm gonna be there yeah, for sure yeah yeah, yeah. You, you would enjoy talking to him he's a really really cool guy and yeah. um yeah really cool gym i just uh it's been it's been really helpful for me um and on my on the personal side so like and having a coach again because before uh before charles died i was actually doing all his um, dojo strength stuff for like the year before so mm -hmm. and I was actually going great because I hadn't done like mm -hmm. a functional hypertrophy program in like a really long time and right. my body felt great on it I definitely got stronger sure, in, sure. A mat, in a jiu-jitsu mat sense and actually that inspired so much of how I train a lot of jiu-jitsu athletes because I don't train them like power lifters you, you just don't you don't mm -hmm. really need to but the one thing they have in common without going on too much of a tangent is that for jiu-jitsu their GPP is the stuff that powerlifters mostly train. So, like jujitsu guys have conditioning in bunches, and they mm -hmm. have um, they they tend to be kind of explosive too, but mm -hmm. they're not strong. 
So mm-hmm. if you, even if you do kind of put them through a little powerlifting cycle, they get stronger, and that's like their bottom of the pyramid. Right. So Understood. it kind of is flipped for them. Whereas like a powerlifter, they always kind of like need to bring their conditioning up, but not too much. You sure. Know? Sure. So it's, 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 it's an inverse relationship with the two. Yeah, but they complement each other well. So there's a lot to like mm. feed into one another, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine that for a sport like judo or jiu-jitsu, where you really have to have a tremendous control of your center of gravity Mm -hmm. um that powerlifting cycles would be ideal yeah no definitely i um i i've always kind of felt the same i think one thing that i learned a lot from charles actually at that seminar Mm -hmm. that made me look at judo in particular a lot differently Mm -hmm. was that the sport of judo it happens so much faster than jiu-jitsu like the rounds in jiu-jitsu are just it's like one long round mm-hmm. whereas in judo it's like things happen like lightning fast it's like tension 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 explosion you know mm-hmm. whereas jiu-jitsu it might be like tense real quick but then you have to get loose again you're trying to get inside get mm-hmm. a hook here do this explode mm-hmm. boom and mm-hmm. there's a lot of um there's a progression to the movements in jiu-jitsu that yeah. is more extensive than the Mm-hmm. explosive movements that you see in judo right there's not a progression from this point to this point it's like i'm getting from this point to that point as fast as possible right with it's, no stops in between yeah and charles shared with us a study that um the that they did on on a bunch of olympic sports and they measured i can't remember what it was the level of blood lactate or something or other like immediately following a bout of whatever it was they're doing swimming judo basketball uh, track and field like 100 meter you know 200 etc mm-hmm. and they were measuring that in millimoles you might know this better than me okay and, and swimming was always thought to be the highest like it builds up builds up the most mm-hmm. like that most um those hydrogen ions all that stuff that's like making mm-hmm. your it just makes thin. it more acidic yeah mm-hmm. um and and, and their reading was, I'm going to screw up these numbers, but, you know, I guess when you get to like 30 something millimoles per whatever the measurement is, like you're, it's like tetanus, like you can't move. Mm-hmm. Uh, swimming was like, like tw- it might hit 20 on like a more sprinty type of event. Mm-hmm. I don't know swimming that well, but judo was like 27, 28 consistently. Like it was high, like these, there's so much tension and like, and there's so much of that in the blood. And I, I should look it up because I have good notes from that seminar yeah i'd be um, interested in seeing that so yeah, it sounds like you. the lactate thresholds yeah. were measured in each sport right and the thresholds were consistently higher in right in and, uh, judo and so when i, I didn't I, know that yeah so when i and you feel it if you ever like you don't even have to be like great at any of these things but mm. like spend a few weeks in a judo class spend a few weeks in a jiu-jitsu class and you'll see the the stark difference that like it's just like judo it's just it's so fast and it's like if you have to keep doing that repeatedly it's like having to do like a 40 meter repeatedly you know what i mean right yeah or 40 yard excuse me um that sort of feeling whereas jujitsu feels much more metabolic like it's it's interesting i've done neither Mm -hmm. but you've done both right yeah the judo in a very uh elementary sense but Mm -hmm. but jujitsu and much more extensively yeah i'd love to get more into jujitsu i mean um to judo um that's a hard one on your body but it's a good one (laughs) it's a tough one on your body it's i mean i plan on putting my son in that he's two and a half and Mm -hmm. you know that would be the first introduction into more yeah a more disciplined 
movement yeah, for him because uh, mm-hmm. now he just does like kids gymnastics but yeah I feel like it's 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 amazing in many respects oh absolutely yeah um, mm-hmm. because they have a system again yes. to progress you from like knowing nothing mm-hmm. to being able to learn how to you know accept force and deliver force right it's you know. yeah oh it's such a it would be a great martial art for a kid to get into and even take for a number of years like in a developmental stage even yeah. if they stopped and wanted to play something else right. the base there is so yeah. for every reason you just said it's yeah. it's great i for judo in particular i think you know, yeah I've always, I've always told everybody they're like well what do you think in terms of you know kids in sports and i'm like you know when the kids are early put them in something where their brain needs to know where they are in space mm-hmm. yeah always Definitely. in 360 degrees you know gymnastics yeah. dance mm-hmm. judo yeah you know where they have to really test that ability to understand where space is right because then to make them more athletic in other sports is is easy because, yeah absolutely absolutely because you know, yeah. their hard drive is so developed it is yeah I can tell you the inverse of that too because I always played sport I grew up playing hockey so I played sports that were very I mean hockey has a spatial component more so than like maybe track and field but yeah um, it wasn't there when I got to, into martial arts I had a really hard time my body would hurt in ways that was very like that I'm sure it would not have hurt if I had done that's more gymnastics as a kid and, and whatnot yeah yeah because yeah. my, my rib cage was always like this you know hockey sure. or, yeah it's just yeah. everything jujitsu you had to open and close open and close so it's just and use the was, ground yeah and use it was yeah it was, yeah. it was a really hard transition for me and but for some weird reason I liked it a lot <laughs> like, yeah yeah I just, sure but, um, but yeah it was a it was a heck of a transition um, I was gonna bring it back to, to to judo and that was something I actually asked Dr. Herrera about and I thought that was really interesting is that he said I asked I can't remember the context but I said what did what did the judo guys do a lot of and he said to me that they always had uh, mats next to the the weights in the weight room, so they were like they were doing these like hybrid sessions. Like it wasn't necessarily like go to judo practice, go to go to weight weight, yeah weightlifting. It was it was kind of like one and the same. They were Ooh, always kind of doing both. You have to I, ask him more about that I know, when we I, see him. I really, I really want to. I've been meaning to... Um, I actually sent him a message the other day because he wished me happy birthday, which was very nice. That was really nice. Yeah, I, He's I, a good man. I really enjoyed his... He's a good man. Time. We yeah. tapped into maybe about 0.00001% of uh-huh. this guy's mental database For when sure. it comes to uh, sports science. Mm-hmm. He's a double PhD. He's really, really well read. Mm-hmm. Um and just you know a lot of a lot of real coaching experience yeah that's true i can uh, only imagine yeah yeah, yeah. so imagine. we were tapping into like nothing but he said some really he had some very very interesting uh tidbits that you had to grab which that was one of them and yeah. i'm glad you brought it up about the judo i did not remember that yeah was that private when he spoke to you or it was i think we were going like people were breaking for the bathroom or okay. something and i some, was it you who it, what i don't know I, it must have been you translating what he said yeah. for me at that moment um because I, I asked him about judo and he he laughed and he and he said that it was very unique and then said that that they that they did that or, yeah. but I don't know what the context was I don't know like yeah. how how that all worked itself out yeah. but 
Um, but yeah, I had a really specific question for him though that I thought of. I was like, there's probably no one better to answer that question than him that yeah. I thought of. Originally. Maybe Dr. Givoye when it comes yeah. to judo because he was on the Olympic oh, really? yeah. uh, team for France. Mm. Uh, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about what they did over there for their, for their training. Yeah. Very different to what uh, the Soviets and the Cubans did. Right. Where they actually used weightlifting. The French... They used a lot more calisthenics oh, and yeah. uh, a lot more partnering up stuff. Mm-hmm. Like uh, what he referred to as traditional um, partner exercises from Japan. Oh, interesting. So they would do a lot of, you know, uh, fireman's carries and right. squatting and mm-hmm. uh, uh, pull throughs and, yeah. you know, exercises that you and I would say, hey, that's a pull through. And yeah. like, they're using a gi and another body. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or you would say, hey, wait a minute. That's, uh, yeah, they're doing zercher squats. And they're like, yeah, we would do right. three, three sets like this, three sets with him on our back, yeah. three sets with him on our back this way, yeah. holding like, a, you know, like grappling like a monkey, three yeah. sets on the front. So it was very interesting. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, when I trained a lot, I, st- I still do train there, but when I trained a lot at Marcelo Garcia down the street, uh-huh. he, as we got closer to tournament time, I don't know if it was deliberate, but we started doing a lot of things like that in the gym too, like to warm up. You'd have to, you know, drag someone across the mat, like a sled pole or like, yeah. um, you know, you'd have somebody on your back, you'd be walking, you'd have somebody kind of, you'd be basically like pushing them but they're giving you some resistance but they're giving so it's almost like a sled push you know right just right. like he was really into that yeah. He, yeah I don't know if he still does a lot of that but that was kind yeah. of yeah it's true that's what I always say to people in that world who'd say like I don't do the strength and conditioning and then you ask them some more questions and they tell you about things like this I was like yes you do that's, yes that's you it. do that's it <laughs> yeah you're just not using a barbell or a, yeah. you know a lat pull down you're using right you know right. another person yeah right. You're not writing down how many reps you're doing, but you're... Yeah, you're doing them. You're doing a facet of it. Yeah, it's true. Uh, That's one thing I always... And I'm sure you would have good perspective on this, that I always had... I don't want to say... One thing I identified a lot with with Charles early on and why I wanted to learn so much from him Mm -hmm. was that it seemed like even going back to like the old Poliquin Principle books, he always talked about um, the... The like... uh, benefit that hypertrophy and sort of that that range of strength can have on athletes of so many sports is it mm-hmm. was, was never uh explored enough or whatever you'd want to call it like it was uh, people underrated it mm-hmm. and, I, and i always agreed with them because i always saw that and i think that was something i saw in myself when mm-hmm. i was a more of a competitive athlete and and then hearing him say and i know he was just saying this in the context when i was with him at that seminar in the context of, of combat sports is he was not so much into a ton of energy systems development. He was more into the strength aspect for them because he felt, and I, I tend to agree in combat sports, you do a lot of that energy system development on your own, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'd be curious how you, what you know about his theory and then your own. Cause I'd like to talk about how mm-hmm. you practice and how you do things as it relates to energy systems. That's a good question. I mean, energy systems, I've, I've got a good, a good knowledge base myself and my colleague Paul Gagne mm-hmm. used to lecture on energy systems about six or seven years ago mm-hmm. um, we did that quite a bit energy systems with regards to different 
sports. Right. So with regards to MMA right. in particular, mm-hmm. uh, it's a mixed energy system sport if right. you look at you know mm-hmm. the sports. So you need you have a component of different energy systems right. all blended into one. Right. So you need to look at the athlete individually. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to test them individually and see what those individual components look like. So what does that athlete's VO2 max look like? Mm -hmm. What does that athlete's power look like? What does that athlete's anaerobic power look like? What does that athlete's alactic capacity look like? Right. Um, You need to determine what those individual aspects are throughout the year Mm -hmm. and then where they need the most help relative to what the demands are of a you know, of three five-minute rounds or of right. five three-minute rounds, whatever the parameters are mm-hmm. that they're fighting within. And then, you're right, Charles was really good at looking at the sport. So now you take those principles that you've tested, right. in my opinion, within the parameters of the entire training cycle. Right. So I'm going to, you know, is there any benefit to having you do road work uh, for this particular energy system as an MMA fighter, when you're doing this many rounds of, you know, of drills, right? And this is the demand. So you're already covering that. So do I yeah. need to, do I need to prescribe that to you? No, I don't need to do that. Right. Maybe I can also train your energy systems within the parameters of your weight training workout. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know that I can prescribe your rep ranges and your rest periods mm-hmm. to target a certain energy system. And now I'm killing two birds with one stone. Right. Because mm-hmm. I can work on a certain aspect of your strength. Right. And I can also attack your energy system demands at the same time. Right. right. Dr. Herrera was a big believer in that as well. He said the Soviets used that a lot. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I guess the long answer is, yeah, you know, martial arts and MMA are those unique type of sports where, specifically MMA, where you're doing, dude, if you're wrestling once a week, that's a training unit. And you have to look at what you're doing in that wrestling. Right. Am I going to prescribe more energy systems work to that athlete? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. I, need, I need to look at that. You know, I need to allow that system to recover. And I also need to test it. And maybe I say, hey, yeah, you need to, mm-hmm. you need to uh, change your technical training a little bit so that you can work on this particular energy system. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And work with the technical coach. Right. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, if you have them doing rounds, you know what? Let's, you know, try to keep them within this energy system so that we could accomplish both things. Right. Because this is where he's lacking. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's a team approach, really. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's not just a strength coach. Yeah. I was just going to say that I I think that's one thing that I realized when we were talking about that one athlete where it was kind of pulling back a little bit. Mm -hmm. It was that was when I learned the real world approach of how you need to have the coach and everybody on board. And sometimes that's tough, but you know, Mm -hmm. but now I'm very lucky that in a lot of these cases I do, and we're all like kind of on the same team and we can talk a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, and I think that's, that's so important because like you said, there's only so much time in a day. And if you can um, like, even just like a base level aerobic or oxidative um, sort of energy system, I mean, you could even have someone do their light drilling and just say to them, all right, we're not going to stop for 10 minutes. 
you know, but it's not heavy or whatever. So now I don't have to have you go do road work or something like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, there's a market for performance coaches, strength and mm-hmm. conditioning coaches that really want to specialize in athletes' recovery. Oh, interesting. And really yeah, understanding yeah. because, mm-hmm. you know, if you take a big level fighter, an MMA guy, you can be very valuable to their team if mm-hmm. you're able to show them right where that athlete's recovery is right you mm-hmm. know i mean the, the there it i know at least 3 or 4 real world team and individual examples where the very specific monitoring of their recovery was the difference between them winning a chip and not interesting yeah oh i believe it yeah from, everything else remained the same mm-hmm. the only thing they changed from one season to the next right was their complete focus on ensuring the athletes recovered properly and they right. used different methods to ensure that they did right and though th- that was a difference maker for them interesting yeah. i think it's it's an you know it's like yeah i yeah absolutely i yeah. think i mean i i would say that by accident i almost stumbled on that on a low amateur level when i first started that i would just look at people and say maybe we like I would, I almost wouldn't tell them I was doing it. Like uh-huh. at the strength session, like we would do something that was so far away from the energy systems or whatever it was from from jujitsu. Mm-hmm. We would just do some. We would work on some other skill, like grip strength or some something. Mm-hmm. Like let me get your shoulders moving better, mm-hmm. and they just started feeling better. But I was all I was doing was making sure they didn't overtrain in the context of here and then mm-hmm. and that and. And then we leveraged something else. Like we were like, oh, okay, now your wrist feels better. Now your, mm-hmm. your grip feels better. Um, but I yeah. forget what Charles' parameters were. I remember in his program design, he used to say if you were working on relative strength and there was a drop off, a critical drop off of more than three percent from your working weight, that you would end the workout. Yeah. Because you weren't recovered adequately. And I think if it was, you know, hypertrophy, it was more in like five to seven percent. I'm butchering those numbers but yeah it was something like that but the fact that way back then he was like hey uh it doesn't matter what you planned mm-hmm. but if you're working on you know if you're doing work that's more neural right you're going to monitor this drop off yeah and this is based on all the research that i looked at right you know this is what the east germans do this is what the Finns do this is what yeah. the soviets do and from those numbers he got his numbers yeah. and he went back and tested them mm-hmm. yeah it's... so they were they were rock solid i mean you would be like hey you know what you haven't recovered enough no dude i want to no no you haven't yeah um and then guys that thought that they weren't ready to go yeah but they were they were supposed to go that day they ended up being stronger yeah yeah, it's you a, know. Yeah, that's that's the that inverse one is the interesting one. The yeah, not feeling great because I know I've always hit all my PRs on days I didn't feel great. Oh, a hundred percent. You warm weird. up, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I can remember walking into gyms in Brooklyn, like you know, just being like, oh, fuck, today's gonna suck. <laughs> and you go and do your best work, you know. Right, right, yeah. right. But that was yeah. That's really that's fascinating, I, it, and it's true. Uh, I I totally agree with you too. Um, that in the big example in MMA is Henry Cejudo because I know after he won the championship at um, why is it escaping me flyweight featherweight flyweight 
there's so many now under 135. I forget. I'm not sometimes. the guy to ask about. Yeah, MMA. no, I know. It's, it's all, I'm like a little foggy today. Uh-huh. But uh, when he won the 125 pound title, that's okay. that was that was the the um, the weight. He um, he credited all almost all of it to the fact that the team he was working with was monitoring, you know, HRV, all these other things, and would kind of kick him out of the gym on certain days, you know, and say like, "No, you, not today." Wow. And he was able to to recover and I mean he's kind of been on a tear ever since and smart team man. yeah really smart team definitely he was really ahead listen of it. all yeah. of these guys mm-hmm. at that level are top of the food chain martial artists absolutely yeah. okay so you're already at that level mm-hmm. all of these guys at that level even the guys that are not at the super elite level right they're all working very very hard right so you have those two common components mm-hmm. right what can be the difference maker once right. you hit that level? You have exactly. to know how to monitor all that. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And then obviously the technical stuff, having the right team behind you and the right game plan and sticking to it. Right. And the, you know, the psychosocial components of everything. But right. from a performance standpoint, you're already going to work hard. Mm-hmm. That's your mindset. You know, you're in, you, you're in a gladiator sport. Right. And then you're already one of the better gladiators because you've made it to that level. Right, exactly. So yeah. you you have no control over those two things. Those are givens. Yeah. So what do you have control over? Mm-hmm. What's the difference maker? Right. To me, it's recovery. Yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah. You know, it's, it's having decisions, making the right decisions like, hey, are you going to move down a weight class? Mm-hmm. Is that smart? Or are you going to move up a weight class? Right. If mm-hmm. this is not the right weight for you, right. where would you perform better? And you can show that to an athlete. Hey, dude, you know what? Mm-hmm. You sucked it up too much, and this is what your numbers look like. Yeah. No matter what you look, you, you this is not healthy. Right. Or look what you look like at this, yeah. at this weight and at this body fat. Right. Look exactly. what you're performing at. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, definitely. I, I totally agree. I mm-hmm. I felt that way for a long time about that being kind of the, the key ingredient. I think the interesting thing, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, mm-hmm. is when is recovery too much recovery? Oh. You know, that's an interesting... Because I feel like before, that wouldn't even have been a question, but now yeah. recovery's kind of a buzzword. And, yeah. And I see some stuff yeah. where I'm like, I don't know that I... That seems The like truth yes, of the matter yeah. is, that's why honestly, mm-hmm. you know, me personally in my career, mm-hmm. I'm involved more on uh, TBI and how exercise yeah, and, and proper... Uh, 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 prescription of exercise can help you mitigate the risk factor. Right. I've thought about recovery because it really fascinates me. Right. But because of what you just said, I'm only on the outside because that I've seen stuff like that make athletes too neurotic too. Yeah, exactly. So, you yeah. know, you're going to wake up and look at your sleep scores. You're going to mm-hmm. look at your HRV like 10 times a day. Yeah. And it could be detrimental as well. Right. Then you run into the guy that is like, you know, fuck my HRV and he gives you an ass whipping. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the, you know, the, it, it can, depending on the athlete, you're right. That can be yeah. a little bit too much. Yeah, because it can be a little nebulous too. Like mm-hmm. people like metrics and that's kind of one reason I think the weight room works is because you see your strength go up or you see your time go down, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I the thing that's worked for me with guys is I, I just have a checklist. I just say, do this once a day. Like it's like a, a more recent one that I wrote was, 
you know, make sure that you got your meals in around the same time. Make mm-hmm. sure you get this much sleep. Mm-hmm. Use the use like the massage gun at the end of the day, you mm-hmm. know, um, and then just like a few other items, like because then then there was con- there was conscious effort on mm-hmm. doing something to put back instead of take out, mm-hmm. and, and that's for me has has been really uh, effective for people who. Like, you know, you're talking about combat athletes, people who I do worry about running themselves into the ground. Mm-hmm. But I, it makes me really happy to see those those checklists come in or the screenshots or whatever. Like, I did this, did this, drank this much water, whatever it was. Because it's that same um, effort that you put in the weight room or on the mats. It's like you put back into yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the one thing that worked for me with those guys. Because, you know, when you, you sound like a mother when you tell them, like, don't do this, don't do this. Instead, I would I had to flip it and say, mm-hmm. like, all right, I want you to do this. You know that intensity you bring to the mats? Like, bring it to that. Bring you it know? to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's another great Louis Simmons-ism on that one, too. He would say, learn how to be bored. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Go learn how yeah. to be bored. Yeah. What it, um... What did uh, Lee Haney used to say, the bodybuilder, Mr. Yeah. Olympia? He used to say, yeah. he used to say the most successful bodybuilders are very lazy. Yeah. The only time that you're not lazy is when you're training. Right. Other than that, you're lazy. That's the only way to get bigger. Yeah. Um, that's funny. But yeah, it's um, it's the way that you framed it in terms of like sneaking in beneficial recovery methods yeah. for them is as as a coach like yourself that's involved with mixed martial artists uh, as your athletes, that to me is the smartest way to do it. Yeah. That's the way that I would do it. If I was mm-hmm. working with mixed martial artists, I would be like um, sneaking in little habits that I knew that were going to have, you know, one plus one is three. Right. You know, things like measuring their hydration. I'm measuring it, but I'm making sure that they're drinking enough. Uh, yeah. You know, by telling them to do, hey, do this much in the morning, yeah. do this much here. But you know, I know that 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 improvement in hydration is going to have a super improvement on recovery. Right. I don't have to look at parameters. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what your experience was with HRV, but like I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And I've heard it's because you need a large sample size before it becomes accurate. But mm-hmm. like I, I would have days where it would people would say like, like I'm good to go but their HRV rating was not there and, mm-hmm. I, and I believed them I, mm-hmm. and I was like yeah I think you are ready to go so mm-hmm. and I had I knew that with myself because I kept it on myself for the better part of you know between four and six months and and I was like eh. I did it more just to gather data but, mm-hmm. um, that's yeah. what the text at Aura told me I'm involved with Aura and mm-hmm. uh, they the their company out of Finland that utilizes the ring oh interesting um, and I asked them the same thing about HRV, and they said, you know, they can, they include HRV in their data for readiness, what they call a readiness score, right. but in order for it to be accurate, you need a larger sample size, and you need to be monitoring it real time right. for a while. Right. Um, I have a limited understanding of what it looks at, which is in the most important to me, right. why it's relevant, right. that I understand. How they get to those calculations, the right. algorithms that they use, and you know what would be more efficacious that right. I can't answer. Right. Um, but I understand its value. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's another thing to look at that the yeah, piece of data yeah. that you can. You know. Hydration for me is a big one, and uh, and sleep is a big one. Right. Uh, and the high, for hydration, 
I use a company called The Zone In Athlete, mm -hmm. and they have a very good way of monitoring oh, on an app, whether you're a coach or an athlete, uh, of monitoring your hydration. Um, they're going to build in some other features which look at, you know, if you're competing or training in Denver and the atmosphere mm. is Denver in Denver is different than it is here in New York right, or right. vice versa if you're training at altitude etc cetera, etc cetera. because right. those you know if it's drier or more humid the, that changes the athletes hydration needs yes you know also plugging in stuff like volume of training yeah and changing those needs and then eventually looking at specific type of water that um, you need yeah um, it's good. Check it out. Zone in athlete. Mm -hmm. It's called what again? The zone in athlete. The zone in athlete. Yeah, they yeah, look. They give you. Out. They give you meal suggestions based on. Oh, very cool. Uh, certain uh, uh, data that you put in, mm -hmm. um, and then they have a hydration. Uh, yeah. Uh, aspect of it as well. Oh, very cool. Mm -hmm. So one thing I wanted to ask, because now I feel like we're going in reverse order, is <laughs> I wanted to get a sense more of, um, so people listening understand you more that. Okay. Uh, what, how would you categorize what you do now and where you came from to where you got now? Normally I'll give you the Reader's things, Digest version, yeah, right? Take so, it as long as you want. <laughs> yeah, so my undergraduate degree is in, um, is in aeronautical engineering, aeronautical oh, science. Wow. Yeah, I was going to be a pilot and had a slot in the military oh, to awesome. fly in the Marine Corps. And uh, for you know, family and school stuff, I decided not to take it and... Mm -hmm. Uh, when I graduated, I had to make a decision, uh, right. you know, whether or not I wanted to pursue aviation or not. And the the industry was going through some real changes at the time. So I always loved the gym, and I played baseball at a pretty high level. Right. Uh, so I got into exercise and training. Went back and got a master's in physiology, uh -huh. and uh, I started in the corporate end of it. And for about four or five years, mm -hmm. I worked on the corporate end of it right. uh, uh, in fitness. And I was like, you know what? As an athlete, I want to work more with athletes. How do I do that? Yeah. So I was. Uh, that's when I first met Charles, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I told him, should I go back? And should I go back for a graduate degree? Should I do something different? And he's like, no. He says, you know, he said something that stuck with me to this day. He said, typically the best coaches in the world are about one to two Olympic cycles ahead of what university is teaching you. Right. So he said, by the time you got that information. The coaches are onto something different, or they've modified what they're doing. Right. Your best bet is to go out and learn from the best. Right. So I started learning with him, and I also kind of made my own kind of bucket list of people that I wanted to work with. Right. And I traveled everywhere from you know Western Canada to uh, Cuba to uh, Eastern Europe, and work with coaches. Like I said before, you know Mel Sif. Right. Uh, you know I worked with. Uh, uh, um, I worked with uh, uh, several weightlifting coaches. Um, oh my God, the name escapes me. Canada. That's okay. <laughs> but um, anyway, a bunch of different. You know, mm. everybody from Kim Goss to Mel mm. Sif to, and met a lot of interesting people. And then I got an opportunity in hockey mm. to work with uh, the WHL. So I started working in pro sports. Oh writing programs for a specific team in Saskatoon. I remember then, the WHL, yeah. yeah <laughs> I worked with the Saskatoon Blades, and that got me the opportunity to get a bunch of guys that got drafted and start working with hockey players in the offseason. Right, oh, cool. So I worked with that team, and then in 011, 012, 
uh, I was a partner in a business and we worked with a lot of athletes from different sports and I was able to work with athletes in everything from baseball to track and field mm -hmm. uh, and we I did that for a number of years uh, and then uh, I was lucky enough through my colleague Paul Gagne to meet Dr. Guy Voyer mm. and he's an osteopath and an MD out of Marseille and uh, he I took we took a four-year non-accredited course which is the equivalent of what they call a, a physio yeah, or a PT oh, here. You're right. kind of an unlicensed PT. And I started doing more orthopedic rehab. It was, right. you know, this program was a blend of different exercises and treatment modalities in rehab. And then uh, when the concussion thing broke a few years ago, I was very interested in why certain athletes were more susceptible to concussions. Right. So I blended together everything, right. all of my strength and conditioning background with the rehabilitation, with the engineering, and um, I'm, use, I'm utilizing that now to work with athletes and to work with organizations to look at exercise protocols that would help to better mitigate the risk factor, whether you're a contact right. athlete or not. Mm -hmm. Whether it's football or it's MMA, what are certain things as a coach or a therapist mm -hmm. that you need to look at and work on right. in order to better ensure that athlete? You're not going to stop the TBI stuff. It's just, yeah. It is what it is. It's yeah. part of the sport. Right. But why do some athletes either recover quicker or mm -hmm. why are some athletes not as affected by the impact or impulse as right. other athletes so that's what I look at from a mechanical standpoint. Right, yeah, that's interesting. And what what have you found, I mean, I'm sure this could be another podcast in itself. <laughs> what have you found was, uh, is there a type of person that recovers better than another person? Or is there, a, or, or is it all, is it all just points on the scoreboard, the negative scoreboard for your your brain, basically? When yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a big question, but I think it's so subjective and there's so many components that are involved. Right. You know, strictly from a mechanic, if your audience is strength coaches and strictly from a mechanical or a performance standpoint, I think it's very, very important for the athletes to have a very good management of the center of gravity. Mm. I think their ability, in English for, for, for coaches, their ability to be able to do an overhead squat mm -hmm. um, and it looked good, right. is a very good indicator of their ability to manage their center of gravity, whether it be statically oh, interesting. or whether it be dynamically and their emotion. So there's, for me, there's a direct correlation between the athlete that looks really ugly doing that type of movement right. and the athlete that does it with a combination of good strength, balance, mobility, uh, uh, neuromuscular integration. Interesting. Yeah. Right? Right. And yeah. then you fast forward that to something like doing a full snatch. Right. Which for me is now you're doing it with certain gravitational forces. Right. Yeah. So acceleration, it's the closest thing. Yeah. I mean, I could have you do a type of, of Olympic lift and, you know, with impact, but that would be stupid. Yeah. You know? So it's the closest thing to being able to, you know, 
execute that type of neuromuscular coordination with g-forces with load uh, yeah mm-hmm. that's what i'm that's, looking at that's fascinating that's really interesting because i can say subjectively or just anecdotally on my own from my own standpoint mm-hmm. that the times in my life where i've had concussions or had the head injuries were mm-hmm. always times where and because i've been in the weight room where i knew i couldn't do an overhead squat <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, listen. Yeah. Like, I knew for damn sure, like, it terrified me. I would not want to hold anything over my head. Whereas, like, now I'm, I would be more comfortable with that. Yeah. I've had a concussion in a while. You know, it happens in jiu-jitsu. I had a bad one in jiu-jitsu, but mm-hmm. two years ago, but not, mm-hmm. um, not recently. You yeah, know? yeah. So that's interesting. So yeah, that's, I think for me, those are really good litmus tests, you know. Yeah. For, again, again, and people that hear this, mm-hmm. there's so many more components of course, involved, of but... From a mechanical standpoint, if mm-hmm. you're just saying from an exercise standpoint, you know, the argument in, with, with, in our industry is, hey, build stronger necks, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I think there's a direct correlation between neck strength, but let's put on the break, brakes, you yeah. know? Um, neck strength, does neck, neck uh, uh, anatomy and neck functional mechanics don't work by itself right exactly your neck doesn't work by itself Mm -hmm. you know your neck works with your whole body so what's your ability to maintain your neck in a good position while your hips are in flexion or your ankles are in flexion or you're on one leg or your neck is in side bending right or your neck is in rotation and flexion Mm -hmm. so and a do you even know where your neck is yeah in space. That's a good point, yeah. Right? A lot of forward heads. <laughs> a lot of, yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah. can you do a snatch right. if your neck is in a bad position? The answer is no. No, yeah. Can point. you do a snatch if in, if your hips are in a bad position? No. Right. Mm-hmm. You that's, know? Yeah, that's It'll look really ugly yeah. if you do, but you know you're not doing a real snatch. Yeah. Um, or an overhead squat, you mm. know? So that's kind of what I'm looking at now, and, you know, right. it's hard to... Uh, to get any kind of research outside of clinical yeah. stuff that we're doing or anecdotal stuff because you're dealing with something that involves, you know, impact and impulse and you can't replicate that. Yeah. So you just kind of have, you have to backwards engineer it. That's the only way you can do it. Yeah. You know, and it has nothing to do with equipment. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, yeah, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've always been curious and because I do get that question a lot from athletes too. Like, what do you think of X piece of neck gear or whatever it is? Or mm-hmm. how should I train my neck? You know, mm-hmm. because if they are thinking about concussions, that's mm-hmm. usually the, the natural um, first question that they ask. Oh, yeah. So, I don't yeah. want the neck people to get mad at me. Like yeah. Iron Neck and the Halo. Yeah. I think those are all really good tools. Mm-hmm. I just think they're tools. Yeah. And they're tools within the large, the bigger picture. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, the coaches and even the medical professionals, because, you know, I'm in the field. Right. They get stuck on neck reinforcement. Yeah. And it's all about, hey, you know, if you have a stronger neck, yeah. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. there's way. To me, if you have an athlete that has a strong neck but is rigid, yeah, it's yeah, it means nothing. Yeah, interesting. If you have a neck that has a strong athlete but he presents and doesn't even know what position his neck is in space, yeah, that's way more dangerous. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. it's a process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And that and that's where you spend most of your work right now, or. It, in the recovery realm, but specifically TBI and yeah, specifically yeah. TBI. Yeah. We've got a 
we've got a think tank that I helped start called Gray Matter Sports Group. Mm. So we're slowly bringing in professionals, right. um, you know, from all realms, you right. know, uh, that have anything to do with concussion rehab. Mm-hmm. And we bring them in to share ideas right. because that's the best way to do it, you know, mm. is to share ideas because you're like, oh, that makes sense. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. You guys got really good results by um, take, by monitoring blood sugar throughout the day. Right. Interesting. And you start to understand yeah. the correlation. Oh, wait a minute. You guys got really, really good results by these athletes going into the hyperbaric chamber twice a week. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Or my colleague, you guys got 100% results with your patients by immediately putting them on a ketogenic diet. Right. You know? Hmm. Yeah. So we're sharing ideas and hopefully that's a way to help more athletes. Right. Because, you know, it's bigger than we thought. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I know the one thing, because one question I, I screen and ask all athletes that come in here, even general population, but it, it seems to affect the athletes more is... Um, if they've had a traumatic brain injury that they know of and if it comes up in conversation if they've had um, like testosterone and other levels tested like through via blood test mm-hmm. one thing I've noticed is that the longer people have been in combat sports and I, I wouldn't be the first to, to notice this is that their testosterone levels tend to be low and a lot of these guys if they're in like th- which is funky to me in mm-hmm. some ways they're in their mid 30s you know not or, or 30 and they're mm-hmm. on trt or some type of replacement therapy mm-hmm. i always wondered if it's the overtraining if it's undiagnosed tbi because i know mm-hmm. if correct me if i'm wrong if mm-hmm. there is tbi there might be some intra, uh, hormonal fluctuation mm-hmm. so i've always been curious as to w- what that is it's a great question yeah um because i prior I've, to being involved with tbi and and within the concussion space, I would have said that my guess would have been that most of those athletes are just overtrained. Right. But um, if you've ended your career and your levels haven't recovered, mm-hmm. you know, post career, then that guess would probably be wrong. Right. Because your system, at the ages that they retire, they should sort of they should rebound. Right. 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 Um, knowing what I know now. Every time, even in the event of subconcussive trauma, right. which you're going to get in sparring, right, exactly, there's a hormonal cascade that occurs. Right. And my colleague, Dr. Pastore, who's a double PhD in biochemistry and nanotechnology, can explain it way better than I can. Mm-hmm. But there's a cascade that affects that very sensitive hormonal balance of neurotransmitters. Right. And that hormonal balance of neurotransmitters is also associated with the rest of your endocrine system. Mm, interesting. So this is all mitigated by your autonomic nervous system. Oh, interesting. So yeah. is your autonomic nervous system affected by, by a plethora of subconcussive trauma? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Can it affect your endocrine system long term? Mm-hmm. My guess as a non-doctor, this right. is not what I do, just from speaking to professionals in the field, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you you can you can make a direct association with being a fighter and suffering. You know, even if you have fighters that say, "Dude, I've never been knocked out." Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. but you've sparred twelve thousand seven hundred rounds in your career. Yeah. So you've been hit, correct? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So you don't have to be knocked out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, in, order, in fact, you don't even have to have your bell rung. Yeah. You know, it's just a disorganization of the neuromechanical system. Right, yeah. That's... And you suffer that disorganization, and the symptoms can be many. Right. Or they can be none. Yeah. And then show up later. Right. And that's even scarier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's true, yeah. I thought back to all the times in hockey where it was like weird hits where it was like, ah, they were rather benign, but afterwards it was a little weird, you know? And yeah. I, that's, and, that's, and that was when I thought about fighters and I thought about, even before this, the term subconcussive blows was a buzzword, I was like, yeah, that, that describes it perfectly. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly what seems to be happening a lot of yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. And the people I'm talking about too, like they're not even professionals, they're just recreational people. The people who have gone to like GPs and they were like, mm-hmm. what do you do? You've been training for how long? You know, and it's, they're, they're like, okay, well, if you're not competing professionally, you can go on these replacement therapies and things. So I wanted to be mm-hmm. clear. <laughs> no yeah, one. there's some doctors yeah. out in California that are working with specifically, yeah. you know, uh, TRT and and TBI. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, you know, that's but interesting. to yeah. me, that's one component. Right. Exactly. It's only one. Right. You know, it's it's one component. You need here in New York, we look at we look at the neurology. Right. You know, so you're gonna see a neurologist. You're gonna see a functional neurologist or a neurologist. You're gonna get specific tests done. Right. And maybe some imaging, mm-hmm. and then you're gonna and then they're gonna do blood work and they're gonna look at what the biochemistry looks like. Right. Right. So. Hey, you know, you might see a low testosterone, but we see a lot of autoimmune too yeah. with guys that have been knocked out. Interesting. Yeah, you oh, see wow. yeah, you see autoimmune or or right. you see a lot of gut dysfunction. Right. You know, which I wow. guess you can define as autoimmune as well. Right. And then That's from a mechanical standpoint, I'm looking at them as well. That, yeah. And I'm saying, okay, what do you look like? How do you move through space? Right. The answer is multifaceted. It right. has to be. Yeah. How's that athlete moving through space? Right. Because the the better the athlete moves through space, the better the athlete, right. regardless of the sport. Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. This what you were saying was just reminding me of, and it, it seemed like almost mythical to me at the time, but this is probably going back seven or so years at least. Um, I was in Colorado Springs and I was at the NSCA and they were doing, I guess they do them frequently now. I haven't been in years, but they do these combat sports symposiums, these like weekends where they invite coaches to speak and talk to other coaches. And when I was the first ever one they did, it was really good. Okay. And Shane Carwin was there. I don't know if you know who Shane Carwin is. I've heard is. the name. Yeah. He was a, a famous, uh, so you have the first wave of the UFC, like the Elio Gracie, when they still had the tournaments before there was the unified rules. Okay. And then once there was unified rules, where basically the athletic commissions accepted that MMA is a sport and it was state sanctioned and that they were all going to abide by X rules, that kind of ushered in the modern era of okay. MMA. So he was one of the uh, great heavyweights of the early modern era of MMA. Okay. And he. Uh, he is also an engineer by trade and was an engineer the entire time he was like competing as a heavyweight. I think he won the championship. At and one point what was too. his original discipline as a martial artist? Oh, I don't remember. Um, back then, was back he then, was he a was he a karate guy? Was he a? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I'd want to say yeah. it was. I want to say it was wrestling and something else. Like I, I, yeah, because yeah. 
he looks as like an engineer that, yeah. that would make it super interesting yeah so he was an and he still is to this day as far as i know mm-hmm. anyway he was invited to come and talk to us and he was talking a lot about the sport from like the athlete's perspective and because he, he had been retired at that point for a few years and he came from work i remember he was like <laughs> coming from like the engineering office you know right and uh it was in the middle of the afternoon and uh he said that they monitor him and he was kind of cagey about it but like and not in a negative way just so that they monitor him for tbi like or 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 they monitor the effects from his traumatic brain injuries from fighting and so i asked him like i raised my hand and asked him, i was like what kind of stuff do you do or whatever and he was like well i go to the doctor a lot and i go and and, and like it was very vague i don't even remember what he said but then what city was this in? this was in colorado springs so yeah. they were doing he said they do different blood tests on them they keep an eye on yeah. different levels and then afterwards i was approached by a guy um who heard me ask the question from the olympic training center and he said to me that they had some piece of equipment at the olympic training center that he invited me to come see that they were using with athletes to after they suffered a brain injury and i don't know what it was he described it i remember him using words like gyro and some oh, it was other a gyro thing. stem yeah, yeah that was it yeah, yeah it was but a gyro my flight stem. was out that night so yeah. i couldn't go with them to check it out but how did, what is that or how does that uh, work? gyro stem is a piece of equipment that i first saw at the carrick institute at life university in atlanta mm-hmm. and dr carrick teaches a uh he i don't want to my apologies, but I'm not gonna say what his pedigree is because I'm gonna screw it up. But he has uh, he teaches uh, fellows in functional neurology, oh, wow. so they look at neurology uh, from a functional standpoint, and, uh-huh. uh, and um, essentially they're looking at how all of the senses right. affect the function mm-hmm. of the neurological system and. So relative to TBI, part of their protocol is that when you get to a certain point in the rehab, they put you in this device, the gyrostem, that um, they plug in the protocol in the computer and based on all the testing they've done, and they spin you and roll you a certain way oh, interesting. to get your vestibular system to reset itself. Got it. Okay, so your inner ear, yeah. your eye, and your jaw they work together and right. they get to reset that mm-hmm. again i'm giving yeah. you the reader's digest version That's fine. Of this, yeah. but for the listeners yeah it looks like a ride at, uh like it looks like you're in a pod uh-huh. like a round pod and they spin you around and that various protocols based on the testing that they did they test right. your eyes your inner ear and they do various movement tests <clears throat> and imaging and then they they prescribe the protocol so apparently the right the uh, athletes at the olympic training center were using it yeah these were greco-roman athletes i remember like, okay one of the guys that i was talking to was uh, on the the greco-roman team at the time so going back sometime now okay and yeah so they i guess they had had it there because yeah he wanted me to come see it and yeah yeah but i remember that that it seemed uh that was when people because like i said it's you know, seven, eight years ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was on people's minds, but it wasn't kind of front and center. Right, right. Now, you know? Oh, no. This yeah. shit, it went from, I heard about, I mean, obviously everyone heard about the Mike Webster case. So that's kind of oh, opened yeah. the door on everything. Yeah. And then the book came out um, about Dr. Malu and then the movie. 
and it started getting all of this media attention. Right. And I was in the practice at the time, and every eval that we started doing, we put a couple of questions about concussion in there. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at the data at three and six months, and it was about 80% of the athletes that rolled through had at least one concussion. Oh, wow. So we started to correlate some of the orthopedic stuff that was... Um, that we were seeing with concussions right and actually my partner at the time was in the functional neurology program and they we started seeing a direct correlation between uh, neurological dysfunction yeah and orthopedic issues oh wow yeah that's so I mean yeah again that's another kind of rabbit's hole to go down but right. for the listeners the takeaway is that you know, if you've had an ankle injury or an ACL or, you know, you've had any injury, Mm -hmm. are you more susceptible to a concussion if you're in a contact sport? Right. And my answer to that is if that injury still affects your function, yes. Right. So if you're compensating for a knee, an ankle, a a shoulder, a shoulder is a big one, Mm -hmm. um, uh, then you're more susceptible because you're compromised in your functional movement. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, that's... I totally believe it, too. <laughs> I could definitely see it. You know? Right, right, yeah. right. Wow, so I think that might be a good place to leave it then. So, Ben, I really appreciate you. Being Mark, here thanks for yes, having me, definitely. man. Good luck with the podcast. Absolutely. And for the listeners, the space is beautiful. Ah, oh, thank it's, you. Uh, it's... Um, it's the best use of this amount of space that I've seen in a long time. Oh, and thank you. The choice of equipment is great. And, oh, thank you very much. You know, and I, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. You're welcome. You have an open invitation anytime. Uh, you understand this format well, so I could talk to you forever. I, I have a million other things we could go down. We'll do it again, man. That and you'll do hours. That's definitely. Okay. I would love to. Definitely. Please. Um, what's the name of your podcast so people can It's called it The Thrivalist Manifesto. Okay. And uh, we're... Uh, we're Everywhere you find podcasts, we're uh, relaunching it now in January 2020 as we stopped recording for a while. Excellent. So my colleague was going through some injuries that he was rehabbing. I understand. So yeah. we're going to pick it up again. And, we, you know, uh, you can find me at benvelasquez.com. I was just going to say. Yeah. On social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks. Take care, everyone. All right.